0: You're listening to Innovating Smart, Stories of Sustainability for Tomorrow's Innovators. Explore all of our stories at InnovatingSmart.org. What is smart? Smart is system-savvy, managed intelligently, adaptive, regenerative, and trusted. These are our design principles for a sustainable world.
1: Hi, my name is Robert Bostick. I'm the founder of RQB Advisors. And I specialize on business development for clean technologies. Today we're speaking with Eric Wolgamuth, who is the COO of Future 500. Future 500 brings together strategically selected companies, NGOs, and opinion leaders to overcome mutual distrust and advance systemic solutions.
0: My name is Eric Wolgamuth, I'm the COO of Future 500. We are a uh, nonprofit that uh, is the bridge between corporations and NGOs to advance systemic solutions to a host of sustainability challenges. We focus on four program areas of climate, water, product stewardship, and human rights in the supply chain. I think where we're innovative is we are really trying to help both the NGOs and the corporations overcome the cycle of demonization that occurs between the two sectors. These two sectors have the greatest ability to come up with a solution, and then bring that to government to advance um, a policy change that uh, will be good for, for society, good for the environment, good for the economy.
1: And uh, <clears throat> Eric, what are the uh, future 500's most innovative communication techniques for moving opposing parties past their entrenched self-interest towards shared goals?
0: Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. There's kind of an old adage, I can't remember who came up with the term called the green wall and how Uh, Environmentalists, we really talked about environmentalists and corporations didn't speak the same language. Um, I think the the term came out in the mid-90s or early 90s and you're seeing this change today where you have NGOs that are increasingly professionalizing and getting better at translating their social and environmental objectives into business terms. And you're finding businesses understanding that they have externalities that they impose on society and they need to begin to integrate social and environmental uh, thinking and, um, and considerations into their business planning. So whenever we're doing these dialogues between the two sectors, we're constantly challenging both sides to to really look at what the other side is thinking, what are their objectives so that they can begin to speak their language and translate what they're doing into the language that the other side will understand. And I think we play a unique role in doing that.
1: When is it most frustrating that you're unable to do that? And I mean, is is it a matter of personalities or a matter of uh, positions or a matter of self-interest? What blocks that process?
0: It varies on from situation to situation. Each party has various objectives. Sometimes that will, will hinder their ability to actually make uh, commitments or um, agreements with the other side. Sometimes it's that your your funders, if you're an NGO, aren't are not uh, in agreement with you on what the um, agreement should be. Sometimes within companies, they feel that the the economics that are behind a particular agreement just don't make sense because it won't it'll create a um, a playing field that won't be competitive, and so they can't make that economic decision um, uh, rationally for their shareholders. It's often um, this cycle of demonization It really depends on the individuals and their ability to move outside their ideology to see the humanity and the person on the other side of the table. Our job is to try to actually bring that humanity out and cultivate a sense of collaboration and constructive dialogue between the two sides. When we do our job well, that works, and we step out of the middle. And those two sides can then begin to have a, an enduring relationship that will last beyond us.
1: Do you find sometimes can you tell early on when it's not going to work?
0: Yeah, not necessarily. You're always surprised at what can, can lead to a breakthrough in a particular um, dialogue. For one of the, the the event that led to the founding of our organization was um, when our president and founder Bill Shireman um, uh, fostered an agreement between Rainforest Action Network and Mitsubishi Electric. Um, one of the key changes or key moments in that was when one of the lead corporate um, uh, representatives, one of the lead NGO representatives, discovered that they both loved fly fishing. And they ended up going fly fishing together. And in the process of going through that very human activity together, basically came to agreement on what was going to happen. They had to go back to their individual... Um, sides and actually talk about what they had, they had agreed upon, but that basically laid, led to the foundation. And that was a breakthrough that nobody thought was going to be possible. So you never know when what appears to be dire may not actually reach, to, reach some resolution can change on a dime.
1: Hmm. You, you wonder how you can create uh, environments for those kinds of uh, more human connections uh, does, do you have a way of doing that? Yeah, was that just a, that was a one shot, uh, one time? No,
0: I, I, you, you raise a great, you get another good point. There's lots of different ways to approach stakeholder engagement. There's formal processes and convenings and sometimes that can work. Our specialty is really fostering this kind of casual engagement. People are much more likely to open up over a beer, over coffee, where they don't feel like they have to bring their ideology to the table. And once you're able to reach that kind of common ground in a casual setting that everybody engages in every day, you and I are sitting around a conference table. That's when people are much more likely to see the humanity and the person on the other side. You can move beyond that once you create that, establish that connection, to then have that more formal discussions with your team on uh, the NGO side, your team on the corporate side. Uh, but getting to that point is really the challenge, and that's where we try to foster this kind of casual engagement.
1: Well, so speaking of innovations, what are the innovations in casual get-togethers?
0: There's many ways to do it. You know, Sometimes you're encouraging NGOs to kind of show up at a conference where they know a company that they wish to speak to is is going to be speaking on the platform, um, and reach out to them and say, "I'd love to get you know meet you for a drink during one of the breaks or meet you for coffee." Uh, similarly, do the same thing with the companies. Um, there's many ways to to cultivate that. I'm in your town. Ta- I'm in town and I'd love to come by your office. I know I know you have issues with my industry or my company. I'd love to talk to you further about it. You seem like an expert on the field. Call them up for advice. I mean. Both sides. You so would you would know.
1: facilitate uh, giving people ideas how to kind of break the ice and, and mm-hmm. not make it such a uh, adversarial initial try to. meeting. Right. Uh huh. That's great.
0: I mean, people are reluctant to engage, and we try to give them real world, everyday things they already do to make them over to over help them overcome the discomfort that they might have in reaching out to the other side.
1: Are you facilitating the initial uh, of these people coming together, or are people calling you saying, "Hey, well, I'm an NGO. I'm Greenpeace. Uh, we're about ready to potentially hold a uh, large oil company or someone accountable for their behavior, maybe you could help us uh, strategize how to take this a little softer approach before we pull all the heavy guns.
0: It happens all the time in a variety of different ways. Sometimes we, we say we know there's these particular decision makers at a company we recommend that you reach out to them first. I think you'll find a receptive ear. Similarly with the NGOs, they're not monolithic. There are individuals within each organization that may be more willing to engage in a constructive way than others. And so we really try to connect the dots and get those kind of folks together.
1: That's great. Uh, Your website shares an interesting quote from the Wall Street Journal that states, with a laptop computer, a website, and an email address, you can wreak havoc on a giant multinational. Is this risk management concern giving NGOs more leverage than ever to support corporations to improve their corporate image, their worldwide labor practices, and their impact on the environment? Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I think that's entirely a true statement or, within your embedded in your question. I think in, a, in you know, the world is flat, Thomas Friedman idea that it is very easy now for, in, for a network of activist groups to um, impugn a company's reputation very, very quickly and mobilize a lot of grassroots pressure against that company. In the old days, companies could control the message through traditional PR. They can no longer do that. And this is, I think, given activist groups a very um, kind of, they've leveled the playing field, if you will, in terms of controlling the message. Activist groups, NGOs, are really trusted by consumers and the media. Um, Multinational corporations are not. So again, you're having a David versus Goliath story dynamic. When the activist groups popularize an issue over over social media, let's say, it's quickly picked up by the mainstream press because they see that David and Goliath story, and that will sell papers, if you will. Companies really need to be aware of this, but but rather than being threatened by it, they should understand that this is really feedback. It's all about market R&D. These groups are giving you feedback through this kind of grassroots pressure about what is what what can work and what can't work in terms of your social license to operate. Progressive companies that are really thinking about this will take it seriously, will want to begin to engage in this medium and begin to engage these groups to use that feedback from those groups. and. Put uh, and, and funnel that into their business units so that they can begin to pl- integrate that in their, into their strategic planning. Smart companies will do that, and they'll outperform their their peers. That we argue, we argue over time.
1: Mm, it's great, and, uh,
0: Wait, and on on that point, yeah, there was a recent um, uh, study that came out by uh, a Wharton School professor looking at. Um, progressive stakeholder engagement by various mining companies in the developing world yeah. um, to help shore up their license to operate. Now, mining is rife with lots of uh, challenges at the local level from environmental impacts to human rights impacts, and they found that the companies that engaged in a proactive way, really engaged in the community in mutual decision-making, had a much more durable license to operate in those, those areas where they had operations than companies that didn't do that. So this translates directly into bottom line impacts. So it's just something to think about in terms of stakeholder engagement. We say it's an expansion of market R&D. It also is a way to ensure more durable value.
1: That's That's a great story. Um, uh, There's an insightful quote I once heard by Paul Anderson. He said, I have yet to see any problem, however complicated, which when looked at in the right way, did not become still more complicated. Do you find this to be true when opposing interests look at each other's shared concerns objectively?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Sustainability issues are highly complex. I think that uh, when you're dealing, grappling with an issue that's being put out into the popular mainstream, everyone's using their sound bites to get their point across. But fundamentally, when they get down to, to the table together and they really explain, when a company explains what they're actually doing operationally, what the challenges are cross-functionally in terms of aligning various business units around a common, let's say, procurement specification. Uh, when the NGOs begin to really understand the economic dynamics that are happening in, a very, in, in various industries, they begin to understand the complexity of the problem and um, can begin to work together on a more systemic solution uh, to address that problem. It's, you know, sound bites aren't going to get you there. It's when you really roll up your sleeves that you're going to come up with a solution that will work.
1: Thank you. Uh, and... Um how does this truth, the fact that they realize that they have uh, have very complex realities each team side is facing, in fact, the corporate side has much more complex realities than the NGO side. The NGO right. side is just trying to make sure that they're holding their feet to the fire about the externalities. The corporate side is trying to probably push, kick down the road a little bit if they can. But how um, does this truth transform perspectives and strategic outcomes? Mm-hmm.
0: its um, I mean, the transformation occurs when a company is willing to understand the race to the top dynamic. So if a company can position some agreement in a way that will advantage itself vis-a-vis its, its competitors, by them forging that agreement, that those activist groups are then going to turn to the next company in the industry and the next company in the industry. So there is a first mover advantage that occurs um, if a company is really uh, progressive enough to work with that group to frame a solution that will, will be better for that company vis-a-vis its peers. So. That can be very transformational in terms of an industry's impact on, a, on any given issue. And really smart activist groups understand that trying to cultivate this race to the top where they play different companies off one another.
1: Uh, in other words, uh, <laughs> the new, this company, is, who now was engaged by this NGO, has got better practices, mm-hmm. more, uh, uh, frankly, they're being more accountable for their externalities. And now that potentially gives them a potential. Uh, opportunity to have a better corporate state or corporate uh, practice, what do they call it, the corporate responsibility mm-hmm. uh, in their PR and in their annual reports, mm-hmm. uh, that caused the other guys to say potentially, hmm, you know what, we should probably, see what pe- best practice we can learn from them. And and I guess my question then is, do these corporations then take their best practice and happily provide them to others so that others can raise the bar?
0: Not, ne- not always. I mean, often you're finding that a company's um, peers are watching the dynamic between an activist group and, and a corporation, and they're already behind the scenes trying to figure out what they need to do now to get their house in order. Um, so I think where the real action ten, tends to happen is if an industry is beginning to advance some solution for the industry, they can then go with the NGOs to whether it's their state legislator or the national, um, or, or you know at the federal level to try to advance a solution or a policy that will institutionalize the change that they're beginning to put in place at their industry level. So that is, you know, you see things happening right now on fracking. This is a great example where there are some players that think there is a responsible way to do fracking and there's a lot of wildcat independent operators out there that aren't doing so. It's a lot more complicated than that, but at a basic level. And you're seeing some mainstream environmentalists who really believe in natural gas as the bridging fuel to a low carbon economy. They'd love to see us get out of natural gas, but in the short term, natural gas is better than coal. So you're seeing this kind of common ground occur between big energy and mainstream environmentalists who want to pass some kind of a policy that will reinforce the good practices that leading companies already have in place, but institutionalize it at a policy level to create that level playing field.
1: That's great. Um, My final question is, is, um, today our political system is trapped in an epic ideological battle. What innovation does Future 500 have to break down ideological battles into shared strategy to satisfy all parties' political agendas and Mm -hmm. self-interest?
0: I touched on a little bit in my last comment, but fundamentally, at least in the work that we do, we will talk to everybody, conservatives, Tea Party activists, to the progressive left environmentalists, to environmental justice groups. Every group has valid points, and you often find that there are common principles that all sides agree on. If you can find folks on the right and folks on the left that actually agree on the same principles, they realize that they have common ground, that there is um, that they have mutual interest. When they when you create that dynamic um, and you bring them together, it's like an aha moment, and that's when you're able to then go to a place like D.C. or a state capital and potentially have a chance to pass policy in such a partisan world. So that's what we try to do. We're not always successful, but. Um, it's, uh, it's great work to be doing it and I feel it's a great privilege so hopefully we'll achieve some change in my lifetime
1: and that's so great thank you so much and you guys are, are great uh, diplomats to hopefully bring forward uh, improvements in every area of our economy and our political system and uh, we need um, organizations like yours to uh, function I guess my last last question I've got the last one the last one so in parting what is waving a magic wand where would you see your folks your company being your organization uh, being in five years mm-hmm.
0: It's a it's a something we think about a lot. Um, I uh, well, we have an office affiliate office in Beijing and in uh, Tokyo, and we've been growing pretty well in the last um, couple of years, which has been great because there's more more need than ever to create some kind of intermediary role between these two sectors in a world of increasing partisanship. Um, I think our job would be to try to hone in on the very the, the most systemically important issues that are affecting our economy, things like a price on carbon, things like a price on water, things like a price on pollution, and see where we can bring these common interests together, these NGOs uh, with these companies together to find some systemic solution so that we can actually advance the world that we all want to see for our kids. So five years from now, I'm really hoping that we are bigger, we're involved more um, uh, intricately in advancing the solution to each of these problems. and. Uh, we have a lot of plans to get us ourselves there. So um, hopefully we'll, we'll have a different story to tell five years from now. And thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts.
1: Thanks to Eric Walgmuth for talking with us today. Visit Future 500 at future500.org. I am Robert Bostic. This story was produced by myself and by Alex Kawashima, Natalie Forsythe, and Christopher Gonzalez. And directed by Sue Lee Beck. Music courtesy of Triplexity with support from Plant Trust, preservation of land for agricultural needs, Sustainovation, business for the world we share, Silicon Valley Innovation Associates and Starnet, harnessing the power of partnership.
0: This has been Innovating Smart, bringing you stories of sustainability for tomorrow's innovators. Explore all of our stories at innovatingsmart.org.